Hi there, welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast, episode 26. Yikes! Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. World headquarters of the Downtown Radio Show that airs weekdays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on WZON Radio, WKIT HD3, streaming audio on both the uh, Zone Radio, the WZON app, and our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. Our podcast is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. We talk with two talented entertainers on this week's edition of the podcast, actor William Jackson Harper and singer-songwriter Kim Carnes. Uh, we begin with one of the stars of one of the hottest and most talked-about shows on television, The Good Place on NBC, has just recently started season three and actor William Jackson Harper, who's appeared in movies like Patterson, has been on Broadway with Brian Cranston in All the Way. He stars as Cheedy. Cheedy's job is to uh, lead people down the right path in an attempt to uh, well, find their moral center. And uh, we had a great conversation uh, with Will Harper about his role, how he came to get a part in The Good Place, and tried somewhat unsuccessfully to get him to share any spoilers with us for the rest of the season. But here's our conversation with William Jackson Harper of The Good Place. I'm a big fan of The Good Place, but it's very funny. I, I had some friends, uh, when they saw you were going to be on our show, said, oh, love Cheedy, love The Good Place. Had a couple others who were maybe even more excited that I'd be talking to Danny from The Electric Company. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's so weird. Uh, like, uh, I mean, it's like cause I shot those shows, like, I think I was like, like eight or nine years ago, so there's people that were like, what, these kids that were watching the show, you know, when they were like little, are coming up to me now, taller than me, bigger <laughs> than me, and they're like, man, I used to watch you on the electric company. I was like, geez, that's, <laughs> you know, but they're, they're kids, and they grow, and they change, and I'm just, you know, grayer. <laughs> you know? I know how that works. Uh, I also had a chance to see you uh, on stage. My wife and I saw you uh, with a friend of our show, uh, Brian Cranston, in All the Way down at ART in Cambridge. Oh, whoa, yeah. Yeah, oh, man, yeah, that was a while back now. It was like five years ago. It was, yeah. And then I also found out uh, we've got a mutual friend, a guy that uh, I did a a show with up here. Uh, Matthew Conlon was telling me that... uh, he knows you from Ensemble Studio Theater, and uh, very exciting. Yeah. You've got uh, you got a new show, a new play of yours uh, that has opened already, right? Uh, called Travisville. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, wait, wait. You know, wait. You know Matthew from doing uh, from like just from doing shows, doing shows up there. Yeah, he came up here, and uh, we've got a regional theater here, and he was Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, and I was the prosecutor. Oh wow. Oh yeah, and I really, I, mean, I really like Matthew. It's so funny. I haven't, I haven't talked to him in a while, but yeah, he's a good guy. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the show. I, am I to understand that when you auditioned for the Good Place, you didn't really understand what the show was about and didn't know if you had any chance to even get it? Yeah. No. I mean, like I, um, I had no idea what the show was. I, we, they gave us essentially dummy sides. Um, you know, our audition material was like just sort of made up stuff that was sort of in the vein of our character, but not at all the character, not at all the real scenario. And um, I thought it was funny and I thought it was fun, 
But um, I asked for a script, and they're like, "Yeah, no, they're not. They're not handing those out." <laughs> uh, and so I was like, "Oh, okay." Um, so yeah, I had no idea, and then I like, you know, went back for a callback and went in for uh, the actual test with uh, Kristen, and I, you know, I got the part, and then they called me, and they were like, "Hey, so um, that part you auditioned for, Chris." Not at all his name. Um, <laughs> and the scenario that you were in, yeah, that's 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 not it. Uh, so why don't you come on into the office, and we'll uh, break down what's actually going on in this TV show. And so um, I went in, and I sat down with Mike and Drew, and they told me everything that was happening. I thought it was a really cool idea. And, um, yeah, it was, but, yeah, I had no idea what, uh, <laughs> what I was actually getting into. How long does it take to say yes to an offer when you know you'll be working with Kristen Bell, Ted Dance, and Michael Schur? How long does it take to say yes? Say to take, take, uh, how long does it take to say yes? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no time at all. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you're just like, yeah, sure, yes, I will be there. Now, you know, d- if, I, if I get to be there every day, yes, okay, great, yes, I will be there. Does it uh, does it come naturally to you to be the moral compass? Uh, I don't know. Actually, I mean, you know, I'm, I am neurotic, uh, like much like GD is, but I'm, um, you know, I, I feel like he is sort of guided by that morality and needs to talk about it. I would much rather just sort of keep my mouth shut and just do the right thing. Um, so it's, um, so yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that I, I feel like being a compass means that you like try to guide people in some way, and I, I don't think that necessarily try to do that. I kind of like try to just sweep my side of the street. We're talking with William Jackson Harper here on downtown. Well, I, I took I took a couple of philosophy courses a thousand years ago as an undergrad, but things keep coming up in the show that that, that spark a memory, and none more so than the trolley problem. Uh, it, well, first of all, is there <laughs> is there any kind of good answer to the trolley problem? No. No, there absolutely is not. It's all bad answers. You you know, it's always going to it's always going to cost someone something, and whoever's operating that trolley, you 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 you, you will walk away scarred. So it's uh, yeah, there's no good answer. How long did it take you to film those scenes? Uh, you know, honestly, the longest the longest scenes that uh, to, to film were the ones where we were actually on the trolley, that basically took all day um, <laughs> because they would shoot me in the face with the blood cannon and then I'd have to change and get everything out of my hair, which is, you know, basically they like spray a hairline on me so I'd, you know, look very clean cut. And, you know, <laughs> um, so like they, yeah, they, they have, it was a huge reset um, every time they shot me with a blood cannon and, you know, Try to get all the blood, make sure there's no evidence behind my ear, in my ears. I mean, actually, when they uh, shot me with the blood cannon, like the first or second time, um, I had my mouth wide open. And this is actually the take they used, and it got all over my teeth. A piece of foam, which was uh, actually doubling for like a piece of bone, just went directly down my throat. Oh. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a pretty long, intense day. Um, but yeah, it pretty much took the whole day to 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 get all those those trolley shots and the blood shots and all that stuff. Well, I'm loving season three and having everybody back on Earth. Good to see um, 
Good to see Janet and Michael without their powers and uh, watching you guys struggle. Is Eleanor the biggest challenge for Chidi to bring into the light? Um, you know, it's different this season, I feel, because she initiates the she initiates the change. Or, you know, she initiates coming to my office and trying to to improve. You know, um and it and so it's like it, it's it's a it's a different energy from the first season where, you know, she's like, Okay, help me to be a better person after she's seen the error of her ways and seen that it's sort of like in the world in the chaos it's like now she's in a, a much more sort of um she's just more open to the idea of of being better um and so it's and, and so it's different it's, in, in a way i feel like she's sort of driving driving the, the the moral aspect of the show a little bit more this season uh than than she is um because it's it, she really wants to be there. She's not bored. She wants to be there. Uh, do you think uh, there's any way that a hip-hop musical about Kierkegaard could actually become a hit? <laughs> I, I, no, absolutely not. But I do think, I do think, I mean, like the lyrics were written out. And I think it's actually really, it would be interesting to find a way to put some music to it and, and, and do it. Um, you know, I've, I've I've thought about it myself, but I'm I'm just too lazy uh, to actually put it together. But yeah, I, it would be I don't know if if nothing else, it would be incredibly funny for um, you know for fans of the show and for you know good old fashioned uh, philosophy files. You know, speaking of fans of the show, uh, do you ever look at any of the fan theories about uh, what's going on with the characters and who they might actually be and uh, all of the ideas about what's going on for those watching at home. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, there's some great ones. There's like, I, I love how people sort of, you know, the the this is a simulation idea. Um, they're not actually back on Earth. Um, you know, I, I love that. You know, our audiences are just so they really sort of they really think about the show. You know, and they they really sort of latch on to any sort of uh, weird dramaturgical quirks uh, that they you know that they could mean something, and it's it's so it's so fun to watch. Um, they're all wrong <laughs> all the time, but uh, but it's but it's but I but I see how they got there. You know, I I see how they how they landed on those theories. Because it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I think if you're really if you're really doing a deep dive on the show and really thinking about it, this theory does hold up. Um, so, yeah, I, I love them. How, how long, how far into the series did you get an inkling of how this was going to latch on in the public's consciousness, and, and are you surprised by it at all? I am, because I thought the show was just so crazy weird, and the idea was so crazy high concept. That and and it was going to be on the network, and I so I was like, well, you know, I'm not sure if people are going to come along with this because this isn't the kind of show that you can just put on in the background necessarily. Because if it's just on the background, it you're going to miss some really strange piece of information that makes a really strange joke work at the end of the show. And so, you know, I I feel like you know a lot of shows, especially on on network television. You know, it's it's sort of just 
it's meant to be enjoyed sort of at your leisure. You can drop in and come out and, and then drop, you know, it, and so it's, it's, it's a, it's a much easier watch in a lot of ways. Um, but then, you know, our show is just a really long narrative and it's really high concept. And, you know, I just assume that folks would be sort of like, you know, like, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't go to a network to watch this kind of thing necessarily. And, um, but I think audiences are really smart and, and I think that they're open. And, um, I think our show assumes the best of our potential audiences. And I think that, you know, we've been rewarded richly for that. And, um, so yeah, I had no idea that it would take off like that. I just thought, I thought people would just sort of be like, you know, like, eh, okay, it's, it's it's weird, but I don't really I don't really have time. Well, yeah, it requires an investment from the audience, but but those who do love it, and I, I have to think too that uh, it might not have been as big a hit in the days before people could go back and get caught up uh, by watching streaming episodes, because I know a number of people that I've I've told about this show have said, "Oh my gosh, thank you for letting me know about it. I've gone back. I'm I'm caught up. I'm now I'm watching in real time in season three, and that might have not have been possible whatever four or five years ago. But now, you know, people and I know a lot of people who've chosen to binge watch it as well. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people have, I, and I think that you know because of the long narrative of our show, um, it really lends itself to binging." Um, because it's, you know, the arc isn't done at the end of that half hour or 22 minutes rather. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think a lot of people probably would get in, um, and see people getting cocooned and be like, okay, well, what, what is this? (laughs) I, I, I have, okay. Obviously they have gone so far down the narrative. Uh, rabbit hole here i can't i won't catch up i i to make cocooning make sense you know oh lava monster right on have no idea what that means um so i think the fact that you know it the show does sort of reward you for sticking with it um it does really lend itself to to just like watching several episodes at a time and you know honestly each season is 13 episodes 22 minutes apiece and so it's you know, basically in about three and a half hours, you know, you can you can pretty much get through an entire season if you just go straight through. Can you uh, just be between us? Can you, you tell us what's coming up at the end of this season? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I had absolutely it for not. a second. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. You just got to... You got to wait for that one. I, I will gladly wait for that. I want to also mention uh, some of your movie work. I loved Patterson. Uh, what a terrific movie that was. And uh, uh, you've got some films that you've worked on that are in post-production. When can we expect to see those? Well, um, the one I actually just finished, uh, Midsommar, um, is expected out, I guess, in uh, summer of next year. So uh, that, that film's... Uh, that's the only one that I have like a solid date on, uh, and it's uh, I'm excited about that one. It's uh, a new horror film by Ari Aster, who uh, was the writer and director of Hereditary. Oh, wonderful! Um, so, uh, which I thought was just a, a, a brilliant movie and and really disturbing and really really wonderful performances. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's that's the the only one that I have a, a date. Uh, a release date on, but um, 
you know, I have uh, another movie called Lost Holiday, uh, which is uh, floating around, and hopefully, you know, sometime later this year will will be released. And uh, a movie called Man in the Woods that I shot last year uh, here in here in New York, uh, and that one I'm not really sure when that one's due out either, but it's a really uh, sort of interesting uh, noir mystery um, that I'm excited about. And your play, Travis Bill, is playing, I believe, through, uh, what, October 28th at Ensemble Studio Theater? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, yeah it's a really great cast. Uh, I, I, couldn't be, I couldn't be happier with the, the actors in this play. They're just, they're just phenomenal. The director um, did a, a, a beautiful job staging it and honestly took more than his fair share um, uh, sort of helming this ship because he was, well, I was, I was in Budapest. I was out of town for work, and he took on way more than is fair for a director. <laughs> you know, he, he, he was really, uh, he, was, he was just really phenomenal and, um, and working with me remotely. So, uh, yeah, Steve Brodnax is the director, um, the best director anywhere. Everyone should hire him. And my cast is uh, the best cast in New York right now. That's author William Jackson Harper of The Good Place. Love the show, and uh, what a good guy he was. A couple people said, did you know him before? Because it seemed like you guys were old friends. He's just hes one of those people that was uh, very, very down-to-earth and fun to talk with. When we come back, the woman who had the biggest hit of 1981 has written several hits for others as well. Singer-songwriter Kim Carnes next, after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing, and Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and if you're in the state of Maine, look for Nice Brewing Company beer in cans. Work hard, play hard, be nice. We're back on Downtown the Podcast with a song that took the world by storm back in 1981. Somewhat ironic that the biggest hit of Kim Carnes' career was a song she didn't write, Jackie Shannon. And Donna Weiss wrote the song, but she certainly made it her own. As uh, we learned about that and lots of other great stories from a long and successful musical career with Grammy Award winner Kim Carnes. 
Records. The album is so good. I mean, you've done so many great albums through the years. It's funny. We've had listeners uh, reach out and say, oh, Cafe Racers was my favorite. And such. A, but this, this latest one, Chasing Wild Trains, that is something special. Thank you. It's um, definitely a favorite, my favorite. Um, kind of the only album I think I can still listen to. <laughs> you know, if you're working on them, um, it's hard to put them on and play them afterwards, but this one is different. It it was such a labor of love, and and um, really I did it by doing writer nights and first doing the songs as they were brand new live and figuring out how they worked best and then calling in my co-writers to come play guitar on them or sing or whatever. So um, it was a group effort, which to me makes it super special. Well, and you worked with some very, very talented collaborators, people like Matresa Berg, Kim Ritchie, and uh, it's produced some wonderful material. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you like it. I like it so much. What's it like there in Nashville? You've been there uh, for a while. What is it about that music scene that you especially love? Um, Well, there's, you know, especially now, um, all sorts of music here. It's not like it used to be as far as just a country scene. I mean, on any given night, you can go to a club and hear any kind of music that you want to. And so many people have moved here. Um, You know, it's gotten very diverse, which I think is always better for a city and and specifically for a music scene. Um, So much talent has moved here. So much talent already was here um, before I moved, all but one member of my original band had moved here, So, and my publisher was here. So as a writer, I kept um, flying back uh, to write with different people, and it got to be so often that I thought, well, I'll, I'll just move there for a couple years, two or three years, and um, then I'll go back to L.A., I'll go back home. But we're still here. <laughs> Well, look, of all the accomplishments you've had, uh, gold records, platinum records, Grammy Awards, this might be the most impressive. That uh, You and your husband, Dave, have been married now for more than 50 years. How do you make that work? Uh, not more than. Don't, just don't over-exaggerate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, it's, um, I won't say it's not tricky. Um, marriage is not easy. But um, it helps being in the same business. You know, when I go on the road, he plays percussion, sings background, he runs our publishing companies. And, um, you know, we don't now, we haven't for years, but in the past we wrote a lot together. We um, we wrote an album called Gideon for Kenny Rogers um, that was a concept album, and it did really well. We wrote that together and a bunch of stuff. So I think, you know, if I was with somebody who wasn't, the music business, it would be really hard, um, probably impossible. So, Well, I'm glad you brought up Gideon because I wanted to talk about that album. It was certainly one of the first concept albums in country music and uh, was a terrific success, and it was Kenny himself who asked you to sing with him on Don't Fall in Love with a Dreamer. Yes, true. Um, he, I think it was a party after the Grammys one night pulled us aside and said he... Um, would like us to try to write him a concept album. And the only parameters, really, he knew he wanted to be a modern-day cowboy. Um, but that was it. So we went home and um, 
thought a bunch. Um, we realized we had to start with the main character, give him a name, which was Gideon Tanner, and really make up an entire story for his life. And after we did that, then we went back and started writing the songs to fit his story. And um, once we got into it, um, not only was it a challenge, but it was so much fun to to do that project. Um, we just loved it. And we, we went in and demoed um, with my band the whole album so we would have what sounded like a finished product to Kenny so he could get a good idea of it. And um, we played it for him. And he loved it and said, if I do Dreamer, will you do it as a duet with me? So um, it, it was before we'd moved to Nashville, quite a bit before. And so uh, he recorded here. We came back to Nashville uh, for the recording of Gideon and sang backgrounds on it. And we were part of that pro- process. But um, it was, um, we both are so proud of that project. And I really loved um Love doing that. I also, you know, love writing for films. I love projects like that that you can dig into and um, have something specific to write about. Um, one of my favorite songs on the Chasing Wild Trains album is called Goodnight Angel. And um, that came from going to a screening of a film called When They Were Soldiers. And um, the the director wanted... I think every song uh, songwriter in Nashville was invited to this screening, and he wanted songs not to be in the film, but to be on a soundtrack album, um, songs inspired by the film. So I came home and thought for two or three weeks, okay, what could I write that would be a different point of view, um, not of a soldier being in battle, but what or coming home, going to war, what would be unique and what I came up with was write it from the point of view of the people at home, whether it be a partner, a wife, a husband, a mother, a father, of um, how much they missed the person they loved uh, being away at war. And once um, I came up with that and realized I wanted to write it from that point of view, then the song um, I went to the piano because I write on the piano, just poured out. And um, my friend Angelo, who I wrote a couple of songs on the album with too, who was the f- first person to produce um, Kings of Leon, is such a talented dude. I mean, his his writing, his producing, but I love his voice. Oh, his his yeah. vocals on Chasing Wild Trains are great. I think he's just the best. Um, and... So I asked him if he'd come sing on Goodnight Angel with me, and I I love what he did. I just, I think it just makes it. No question about it. We're talking with Kim Carnes here on Downtown. I want to go back early in your career. You signed with Jimmy Bowen originally, and uh, we're, we're writing, we're doing some demos, and what an impressive group of demo singers. Am I right that it was uh, you, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, J.D. Souther, all recording demos? Well, we... Jimmy Bowen had a really small publishing company, and um, Dave and I, along with the names you just mentioned, were signed to his publishing company. Um, There were just a, you know, it was great because it wasn't large. So we would all hang out together 
sing on each other's demos that we'd written. And it was a wonderful time. We were all starting out. And, um, you know, there was a wonderful music scene in Hollywood, um, maybe a three-block area, where everybody wrote, everybody used the studios around there. And then at night, we'd go to this little Italian dive, Martoni's, and sit and drink wine and all talk about um, the latest songs we'd written or what we were going to do. And it was just a very um, hopeful, positive time. Um, You know, I feel so lucky to have been part of that. And, um, you know, after maybe a couple years of writing for Bowen, um, Dave and I were standing in line at the Troubadour one night to see Van Morrison and Glenn came up to us. We said, where have you been? We haven't seen you for, you know, several weeks. And he said, oh, man, we started this new group, and it's going to be so great. <laughs> and we said, what, do you, what are you going to call it? And he said, well, we're going to call it the Eagles. And I think a month later, at most, Take It Easy came out, and, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, it worked, uh, worked pretty well for them there. You also uh, wrote songs with and for and uh, performed on tour uh, with a friend of our show. We were so sorry to hear of his passing earlier, uh, David Cassidy. Oh, gosh, that was so painful. Um, I still can't believe it, you know. Um, just too young, too young. Um, but, yes, in our early days, Dave and I were asked to go on the road um, just one weekend and do the first part of the show, um, and then David would come out after an intermission. And really, they wanted to just see if he could draw um, an audience, because he was um, right in the middle of shooting The Partridge Family, and they didn't know if he could do live shows. Well, you know, um, (laughs) sold out immediately arenas, Madison Square Garden, the Astrodome. So after that one weekend that was so successful, we um, ended up a good two years, maybe more, not only touring um, every weekend here. um, David would shoot his show during the week, and then we'd go out for uh, Saturday and Sunday night shows in this country. And then we ended up doing a couple world tours that we went we went everywhere. A um, couple European tours, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Hong Kong. Um, it was just beyond fun. And David became a really, really good friend and, you know, couldn't go out anywhere um, without being recognized and mobbed. So he'd come over and hang out at our house and we would play the kind of music he really loved. I mean, in those days, Jeff Beck, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Led Zeppelin. He just, it's what he loved. He'd bring his guitar and we'd write songs. A bunch um, he ended up recording, but, and we just would laugh like crazy. It was, it was a safe place for him. And he just was such, such a good guy. Um, best heart, biggest heart in the world. Mm-hmm. And the greatest sense of humor that I don't know if a lot of people really know that um, about him, but he just, he was wonderful, and um, when he died, we were shocked and sad, you know, it just, 
again, way too young, too early. We're talking with Kim Carnes here on Downtown. I think I first became aware of your music uh, with You're a Part of Me, a couple different versions. Uh, I remember as a young radio guy grabbing it right out of the box when you did did the duet with Gene Cotton and said to my my program director, you got to play this. It's going to be huge. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, um, I think Gene was the first person to record it, and then I recorded it on my first A&M album. I think it was that way. I don't know. But, um, yes, that was one of the first uh, early songs that I wrote. Um, And um, I loved when Gene came and asked if I'd do it as a duet with him. It it worked. Again, we recorded, I came from L.A. to Nashville. We recorded that in Nashville also. Uh, Betty Davis Eyes, of course, uh, the song that just uh, blew everything apart, uh, went to number one, stayed there for nine weeks. And ironically, for somebody who's been such a successful songwriter, you didn't write that one. Jackie DeShan and Donna Weiss wrote it, but you and your producer really changed the tone and the feel of Betty Davis Eyes. Yeah, we did. I heard it. Um, Donna sent me the demo, and I loved the concept. Um, I loved the lyric. And we went in, I always like to record live, so um, we went in with the band, and we rehearsed it for at least three days trying to figure out what to do with it, how how to make it different. And whereas it wasn't dark and minor chords and kind of moody before, that's how we ended up doing it. Um, really, my keyboard player, Bill Como, after about day three, was sitting at his keyboard over in the corner and came up with the signature lick. And I remember looking at him just going, that's it, you did it, that's it. And everybody else just fell into place. Um, We recorded it the next day, second take, live vocal, Mm. live everything. And then um, the mix ended up being a rough mix um, that um, we did right before... Christmas vacation, Christmas break, because I couldn't stand not to have. I'd probably recorded five or six songs for that album at that point, and I wanted to listen to them at home, and we could never beat that rough mix. Um, it's just like why I love to do live vocals and cut things live. There's a, it's a performance, and um, every time uh, you mix it live as opposed to an automated mix, it's a performance, and it's different, and I swear, I hear, I know the difference. Um, And I love, you know, I love that ingredient. So anyway, it was a rough mix and worked out um, pretty good. Yeah, I would say so. You know, what that record did for me was really um, solidify a worldwide following. And to this day, I go over every year and I play Europe, South America. I do television there, do live shows. And it's, you know, it brought the rest of the world um, to me or me to them, all of the above. But it, um, you know, that was an extra bonus I'd had um, with writing, of course, first, but then success with records here, chart-wise. But in Europe, you know, not as much. So um, that changed really everything. Is the story true that the song led to you becoming friends with Betty Davis? Yeah, it did. Um, She was so remarkable and gracious and wonderful. Um, 
I went over to her house the first time we did a photo together, um, a black and white by a really famous photographer um, of movie stars, George Harrell. And we met and, and talked a bunch. And she said, well, come back anytime. I would love to continue this conversation. So when the album went platinum, I called her and asked her if I could bring one over to her. And when I got to her place, she got a letter and a hammer and nails and put it up on the wall. <laughs> and we had several really great visits after that. And the first thing I saw when I walked into her house was a needlepoint pillow on a chair that says, no guts, no glory, which <laughs> is so perfect for her. I mean, that's how she lived her life and her whole career. Um, once in a while, if I would do a TV show, the phone would ring and I'd pick it up. And on the other end was, hello, Kim, this is Miss Betty Davis. I just want to tell you, I saw your show, and I absolutely loved it. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> you know, um, she was so dear, just wonderful, and told me she would pace up and down the hall and tell me story after story of how difficult it was to be a woman um, and stand up for herself within the studio system in those days. You know, she was thought of as being temperamental. And she said, I just only wanted to hold out for the roles that were really good, you know. Mm. Um, and yeah, she was just remarkable. And boy, do I treasure that friendship big time. You were also part of one of the most iconic performances of the 80s, a part of the group gathered together to perform We Are the World. I, I know that you talked about this with a friend of our show, Jeff Perlman, in a wonderful Q&A. Oh, I love him. Yeah, that was, that was great. It's on your website, and uh, people should go there and check it out. But what was that experience like doing We Are the World? As good as it gets. I mean, um, when um, we recorded it at A&M Studios with Quincy Jones, and before we walked in the studio, there was a big sign that said, uh, leave your ego at the door, and everybody did. It was just people were so happy to be there and be part of it, and um, it just was pure joy from that evening until the sun came up. You know, when we left to go home, it was morning, bright and sunny, and uh, the record was finished, and again, so proud and lucky to have been part of that. One of my favorite recordings of yours uh, that, that you didn't write was a song you did, I think, on the Mistaken Identity album, uh, When I'm Away From You, a great Frankie Miller tune. And you got together with Frankie uh, just a few years back and did a duet with him. Yeah, we didn't get together, um, I mean, in person. Um, but uh, his producer from London sent me um, several songs that were going to be considered for the album, and I picked... Um, the one we ended up doing the duet on. And I love Frankie. I had recorded a couple of his songs, and I love his voice. I love his writing. He's just um, the real deal. So I was thrilled to do that. Well, you've had great success uh, as a songwriter. Three of your songs have gone to number one on the country charts. Is that the focus for you now, is the writing? All of the above, really. Um, I still write several times a week, and I'm writing now for um, 
well, I guess I don't really write for the next album. If I write something that I think I would want to record, then I just put it aside. Um, if I think it should go to my publisher and be pitched to other artists, then I do that. But but I still, you know, nothing, um, the other component is going on the road and doing live shows, and I'll always love doing that. Um, and also, you know, after moving here, um, I do so many um, writer-in-the-round shows and with so many pals that are just like Matresa Bird and Angela, great songwriters, um, to get together, three or four of us, and do an in-the-round um, is really special. My, you know, my favorite part of what I do really is the collaboration. I love my band. I love the other writers. I just love doing music with other people. I've always loved singing backgrounds. Um, for anybody who asks, I'm there. And um, so I do it all. I mean, well, I do both. You do. And the latest album, uh, people need to get, listen to it. It's so good. Uh, Chasing Wild Train, songs like Just to See You Smile, Good Night Angel, Runaway that we played earlier, uh, Too Far Gone. It's some of the best music of your career. Love it. Chasing Wild Trains. Kim Carnes. Baby is where people can, the easiest place to get it. Absolutely. Amazon. Well, Kim, been a fan of your work for a long time. It's a real delight for us to talk oh, with you. thank you. I'm so glad um, this worked. Thank you so much for making time for us, and we wish you continued success and good health. Thank you, and um, thank you so much. I appreciate um, talking. That's Kim Carnes here on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks to Kim for being with us, actor William Jackson Harper as well, and uh, thanks to you for listening in. Hope you subscribe if you have already. Thank you so much. If you haven't, what are you waiting for? Tell your friends as well, and join us next time on Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine.